1: But was that in a hailstorm? I mean, they didn't like postpone a game five miles
2: away, lightning. <laughs> you just better
1: if you're in the stadium, no big deal. So,
3: so, those early 60s games, if you look at like the things that these coaches, particularly Bryant, were saying on a rainy day, he would pace his hotel room and go, This is Dodd's weather.
4: These are the tales of college football past as you've never heard them before. Our guests tell stories blending team seasons, on- and off-field moments, memories of personal fandom catastrophe and elation, and yes, alcohol. I'm Jeremy. I'm Matt. I'm Joe. And I'm Kyle. We do the work. You tell the story. These are the college football stories.
3: My name is Jake Grant, and I'm going to tell you the story of the 1966 Georgia Tech football season. This is a little bit further back, I know, than uh, probably I have direct experience with. Uh, I am not somebody who's seen this season live, but in the grand scheme of things, um, it's really tough to be how 1966 acts as a bellwether, not just for Georgia Tech as a program. The waning years of Bobby Dodd and his retirement uh, eventually after the season, spoiler alert, but also for the city of Atlanta as a whole, uh, for the campus uh, of Georgia Tech, as well as some of the other narratives we see on the college football gridiron.
2: What led you to, uh, to choose this season in particular?
3: Yeah, that is a great question. Um, one, I think more than any other season in Georgia Tech history. And there's a couple with some war implications and Heisman inventing the game and all that stuff. But if you wanna know about like stories and divergence and, and uh, just how a, like a, a season can define a program, there's no there's no better one than this one. And, and you can look at maybe like 64 and be like, oh, it's the first year out of the SEC or 60, 63. Last year in the SEC, there's a lot of, um, Racial implications in '56 with the integration of, of the South and, and and things like that, but in terms of how '66 sets up Georgia Tech, not just for the history of Tech and and the fate of the football program, but what it says about the school in general and uh, kind of the development of Atlanta as a whole, you can't you can't overlook that. Like uh, obviously, 1990 is a, is a great year. It's in the news a lot because ACC networks. Talking about it, they're bringing the team back. They didn't get to do it last year. Like that's that's great, but this this team was two games away from winning Bobby Dodd a, a national title in his last year attack. Like that would have would have gone out with a with quite a bang. But um, but in the end, I think it's kind of also reminiscent of you know um, how is Dodd setting up Bud Carson to be his successor versus his massive coaching tree what did Bud Carson do next, like, just, I, I'm kind of rambling here, I'm one I to do that, I had a podcast myself, but, um, see, my, my my co-host usually has the better airs to know when I'm a little bit of taking a left turn, but it, it's more of what can't you say about what's happened since this, because of this, all the stories around it, than, than you can't say what happened during it, because, because obviously, like, what happened on the field is important, and the 11 games, yes, but, just how it uh, resonates in, in the, like, zeitgeist of, of tech's consciousness is you, you can't get anything better. In terms of the state of the program, Georgia Tech was, for all intents and purposes, one of the powerhouses of the South under three successive coaches, those being John Heisman, starting in 1903, uh, widely seen as one of the great innovators in the sport, uh, William Alexander, his successor, and the aforementioned Bobby Dodd, uh, Georgia Tech had experienced sixty-three years of relative stability. Quite frankly, they had won three claimed national titles, uh, as well as a handful of others that are unclaimed to this day. Uh, your mileage may vary on the validity of those. But uh, in, in terms of in terms of the team that Georgia Tech was in 1966, it is not a team in independence, looking into the wilderness. It is a team looking into independence from a place of strength, uh, given the opportunity to schedule who it wants, uh, given the legendary coach the opportunity to pick who he wants as his successor as he sees the athletic department into the future. And a city that's really, uh, a city that Georgia Tech has dominated, called home, um, been somebody that is very uh, prominent and respected in terms of the sports scene in Atlanta and the cultural and technology, technological scene as well. Um, one that is seen as a as a titan, uh, and 1966, as I mentioned, is probably the point where Georgia Tech becomes, for lack of a better way to put it, a lot more interesting. Uh, because I would say that there are interesting things uh, in the in the ups and downs of the oh, about 55 years
1: since then. You you've got a beer, and it's not very clear.
3: Uh, I actually. Um, very purposefully chose the nice beer that I have left. Um, because I am perfectly happy just, you know, drinking a course and, and calling it a day. But um it's um it's wild heaven, I think. Um out in like Decatur, out on the east side. Um they have a tap room in Atlanta too. But um it's called emergency drinking beer. It's one of the more like well, well ish known for Atlanta craft. Like it's it's no Sweetwater 420 or anything like that. But um, definitely makes the rounds, but it's refreshing. It's what I need on a Thursday night. Can't can't do a porter or something like that. So, Yeah. How about y'all? You rocking the beers or?
2: Kyle's a big beer guy. I'm drinking a Narragansett, so. <laughs> I'm just so-
1: drinking the Imperial IPA from New New Belgium, the Voodoo Ranger. It's, it's an okay beer.
3: Yeah, Voodoo Ranger will take you out. Yeah. Uh, it, I didn't know the first time I had it. Yeah, it's like, all right,
1: so you won't see me get up and hit the fridge like every 10 minutes like I normally do. (laughs) So basically, we're starting here with a coach that is in his knowing last year, like we know he's in his last year, right? Or is this a, we know he's somewhere near the end?
3: We know he's somewhere near the end is probably a better way to put it. He didn't officially retire until February of 1967 uh, but the intent at, at least from my interpretation of reading a lot of history books I have his autobiography on the shelf next to me over here um was that you know he was, he was getting old it's it's very hard to be a college football coach uh, let alone a college football coach and an athletic director um definitely a uh, a dying breed in in our day and age and and not terribly common um in the last fifty or so years, but um, yeah, Bobby Dodd was not a young man anymore in in 1966, and it was to the point where, and and this is has interesting repercussions kind of across the country, where his coaching tree is is already getting those those jobs. It's it's seeing all the assistants that he kind of brought up leave, and and knowing that at some point you're going to have to make that change and and set tech up for you know after after 1966 but in 1966 it is hey here's this legendary coach that's been here almost a quarter century he's a he's an elder at a church up the street like everybody knows every part of his family he's an an Atlanta institution as much as as much as you know your ivan allen's or or something like that it's uh everyone knew who bobby Dodd was in, in 1966 and everyone kind of understood at least again my impression was that He's not a spry spry young man anymore.
1: Going into the season, um, was this a season where we were expecting big things from Georgia Tech? They did do AP
3: rankings, but it's really hard to get that barometer because they didn't do AP rankings until like three or four weeks into the season, which kind of using my 2021 perspective, I kind of wish they still did. Like those, those preseason first four weeks or three weeks when there's a lot of non-conference fcs games don't really mean a lot and and even then if, if you look at tex 1966 schedule they started off the season with uh two home games against texas a and m and vanderbilt which are you know sec and and southwest conference at, at the time um for a m opponents those those aren't necessarily bad opponents either but the ap did did hold off until the first of october um going into the season and it's important to keep in mind here for some perspective that Georgia Tech in the nineteen fifties won three national titles. Heck, they only claim one of them. But in nineteen fifty one, um, very 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 good Tech team was uh, I believe eleven zero and one off the top of my head. So they they only had a tie. Uh, nineteen fifty two they went undefeated, uh, were a consensus national championship at twelve and zero, and then nineteen fifty six they went ten and one, and some selectors had them. At them as being a uh, very good team. So those those early 50s, those first seven years of the 50s, Georgia Tech is kind of ruling the roots, for lack of a better term, in the SEC. They're they're winning eleven, twelve, nine, ten 12, 9, 10 games a year in, in season that they're only playing, you know, 12 games max, um, as opposed to today when you, you'd see 12 and go, why didn't they play a bowl game or, or something along those lines? But after that, um, following it up with five, six, seven win seasons. Georgia Tech is still seen with this, with this cache. They're, they're expanding their stadium. Um, it had been at uh, 44,000 through most of the, um, most of the 50s uh, with the upper decking. Uh, they, they upper deck the far side of the stadium, so east and west were done at different times. Um, they're putting seats on the stadium, and they go, you know what? We're making all this money from these home games because that's where the money was in college football at the time was getting those gate, uh, gate receipts. It was Heisman's draw. To, to Georgia Tech in 1903, and it was still a huge motivator in, in 1963 when Georgia Tech is looking at the SEC, which is increasingly a, a cutthroat league. A uh, programs are bringing in uh, 25, 30, 35 recruits every year and just churning through them because they can bring up to 140 uh, scholarship players uh, at one time. So you're looking at a competitive landscape that's changing but knowing that you need some sort of a sure thing, so Georgia Tech, faced with not being able to change the rules in 63, looking at the the Bobby Dodd with, hey, we're kind of just hitting this seven-win ceiling, not necessarily being, I'm out the door, I can't do it anymore, something like that, but just a, this is kind of our, our competitive reality. They go, either change the rule or we're out. The SEC doesn't do anything about it. And Georgia Tech, looking at 64, 65, 66, sees the opportunity to keep Important SEC rivals on the schedule, Auburn, Georgia, Tennessee, Tulane, which was an SEC school at the time, kind of in a similar position to tech. Um, They would wind up de-emphasizing athletics a lot more than Georgia Tech, which is another reason why 66 is interesting, because it's not like tech wasn't necessarily looking at that, but you have Bobby Dodd, AD and football coach, Edwin Harrison, a widely beloved school president going, Why are we doing this? Let's be the Notre Dame of the South. We're in Atlanta, all the railroads come here. We have this fledgling airport. Teams are gonna wanna come play us seven, eight times a year. And when that's an 11, 12 game schedule, you're making a lot of money. Georgia Tech may not have been winning as much as they had on the field uh, in those early 60s compared to the early 50s. But the team going into 1966 was one that uh, year over year um, from about the exit of the SEC uh, in 63 had put another, 70,000 butts in seats in the next two years um, gross year over year. And that's, that's the equivalent of adding two home games, even though those numbers weren't changing nearly that fast. So looking at the finances is just as important as looking at the product on the field, in my opinion.
1: It's interesting to hear you talk about that conference change stuff. Like you, you hear so much about that. We got to stay, like this is the way that we've done it this is how it is but so many stories are in existence like that where this was the SEC in 66 versus this is what it was 10 years later and this is what it was 10 years later and the the big eight which is a big thing down here right yep it doesn't even exist anymore
3: <laughs> you look at uh you look at tech in in 1015 years and they're going we got to get our other programs in the metro otherwise we're going to be completely locked out of conferences altogether while they're looking at the acc the sec but at Mm -hmm. the time, it looked like a great opportunity for them and and when your competitive landscape is (laughs) this is one of my favorite um anthology legend type stories is is bear bryant um, alabama's football coach at the time was known to uh recruit uh all over the place Uh, including his swim team, uh, and it is attributed to Bobby Dodd. I don't necessarily know if this is true, but uh, they quote, weren't the best swim team in the world, but man, were they good at football. And you can kind of read between the lines on that one. Like I said, Georgia Tech hadn't exactly been, you know, bad the previous few years, but you're, you're looking at a scenario in which you have a and a good team uh, or from a good conference at home. You have Vanderbilt, a historic rival, coming into your building with uh, relative to, perhaps modern terms, uh, a pretty consistent roster. Bobby Dodd was never a man to chase players away. He often said, like, if they didn't work out, it's because we recruited them poorly. Um, so when you have a lot of that latent talent, eventually, uh, if you're coaching, coaching them well, and, and Bobby Dodd was was known, granted he was known for being lucky, but he was also known for being good. Uh, so you had a lot of experience coming back and you can't really deny that up against a, up, up against, you know, it's, it's a team at home. It's a team with necessarily something to prove. And, and I'm not saying that this necessarily is the reason they're playing well. But Atlanta's becoming a bigger town. It's you're the big game in town. You're you're a senior heavy lineup. Like that is going to be a a scenario in which not only do you have something to prove, but you kind of have to prove something as well. Like something had to give you a bunch of experienced players and and I think it's undoubtedly true um, that off the bat, especially looking at the AM and Vanderbilt games that they Vanderbilt is the only Rivalry trophy that Georgia tech has outside of the governor's cup. Um, It was found in an attic about 5 years ago um, when they were preparing for another game between the 2 teams. Just. You know, some September non conference kind of thing, but. It's, it's 2 schools that are in a similar place too. It's, it's not like. You look at that schedule and go, why was there, why was that a part of the schedule or why, why did they care? But, you know, between between old sec blood kind of similar uh, cities, similar schools, the it, it, A&M, that, that's A&M, they've only played them a handful of times in history, but coming into Vanderbilt, Clemson, looking further down the schedule, Tennessee, Auburn, Tulane, Duke, like the meat of tech schedule was programs that they were very intimately familiar with. Again, that was kind of the perk of, of going independent is you could play those ACC teams in in Duke and Clemson, uh, but stick to your more traditional SEC rivals in, in terms of Vandy, Tennessee, Auburn. And, you know, obviously there was others on the rest of the schedule.
1: And looking at that, that seems to be, for the record, a very normal Texas A&M year. They were basically six and six. Well, actually, it looks like they were five and seven, but that's pretty much your normal A&M as I slight yes. A&M.
3: <laughs> and it's it's not like it's not like vandy was 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 world beaters either that year it's a pretty normal year for vandy um one one win against the citadel i mean i'd love to beat the citadel but um these days um but you know so, like, it's,
2: south, so it's south carolina yeah
3: <laughs> <laughs> it's uh it's not like they're playing world beaters to lead off the schedule but at the same time isn't that kind of how how schedules are made these days too like you, right you know, you're not always coming off. Play. I mean, I think Georgia Tech opens with Clemson next year, so that'll be fun. But um, you don't always lead off with those world leaders or, or anything like that either. So, but
1: but, You just talk about a year in the making and, and different things. I just pulled up the Aggies football schedule. They tied LSU that year 7-7, seven to seven, and they beat Rice 7-6. to six. You talk about a world-changing scoring system. I mean, can you imagine winning – with seven points in modern football, I mean that's uh,
3: if if you're if you spend any amount of time on the college football internet, there is the Beamer. It's zero zero at the end of regulation. Wake Forest, Virginia Tech game, and I don't think we're ever going to see anything quite like that ever again.
2: Um, I think the the stunning thing for me about like looking at all of these scores is like. You, like I don't even know how you score like 42 points in like some of these games like I mean a, a lot of the scores are like when they're low scoring like they're super super close and then like there's definite I mean it, it's kind of like today with the like haves and have nots a little bit yeah. but like scores are either like incredibly lopsided or they're like one point and like 13 to 12 in the Clemson game is like crazy
3: yeah like there's a there's a lot of old uh Bama tech like muddy brawls where it winds up you know seven to six and someone missed the extra point to to seal the deal but if you if, i'm a I'm a georgia tech history guy if uh, i'll plug this real quick here but for from the rebel seat i do write our history column um during football season it's, it's about football so we're on brand here but um if you turn the <laughs> oh, dial farther, looking at like nineteen, eighteen, nineteen, nineteen, you see like 60, 70 to nothing beat downs. And then, then, then they'll turn around and tie a team three to three. Like that is com- completely normal. And it's, it's weird. Like, I guess we, we live in a, a slightly more like parody rich world these days, but I mean, there, there's arguments to say that that's not true, but that's probably for a different, different podcast. But um, you know, it's, it's it's wild between between blocked extra kicks, um, points after safeties, like that. It, it it's chaotic out there.
1: Well, and you just got to think about 1966. They didn't have synthetic fields. There was no indoor arenas. Everything was outdoors. So we just look at this right now. But was that in a hailstorm? I mean, they didn't like postpone a game because of lightning lightning i mean 5 miles away
2: <laughs> lightning you just better
1: not <laughs> if you're in the stadium no big deal
3: so so those early 60s games and, and we can talk about uh, you know the the bitter blood between Bryant and Dodd or between Tech and the SEC Auburn and Georgia wanting to capitalize on on their location near to Atlanta and, and seeing Tech as a big impediment to that but if you look at like the, the things that these coaches particularly Bryant were saying on a rainy day he would pace his hotel room and go, "This is Dodd's weather," you know. Like they, they, Tech in particular had a way to just weasel out these these one point, three point wins. And I mean, I like to think that that's good coaching or, or players responding to some, yeah. who knows what of what Bob, Bobby Dodd is saying or doing. But you manufacture your own luck, I think. And this and looking farther down the schedule, this is absolutely a team that was doing that. You you noted the Clemson game, 13 12. That's not the only one score or one point win on, on this uh on this list either.
2: For sure. Is there anything that sticks out like as you're kind of getting towards uh towards the end uh end of the schedule? Um yeah. you, in terms of in terms of games or how the season is kind of kind of shaping up.
3: Yeah. I mean there's the obvious answer, and and that's always going to point towards clean, old fashioned hate. That's UGA, and it was on the road in Athens, and and Dodd had had relatively good good fortunes. Uh, I believe he won eight in a row um, against UGA at one point. This was not one of those years. Um, but at some point, your luck does run out. Your your tenure does run out. Um, Georgia Tech, as I alluded to, beat Clemson by one, Tennessee by three. Um, Virginia by one. And it's not like Virginia was was all that good. Clemson wasn't a ranked team. Granted, Tennessee was pretty darn good. And and uh, the fact that it was on ABC in the day that there were, uh, day and age in which there were three television stations, tells you yeah. something there. But, um, you know, you, you go on the road, top ten matchup, rivalry, you lose by nine, like that's, it's almost, almost as if it's a team of destiny. But if you can't win the last one, the big one, and then we talked about the bowl game down at the uh uh unfortunately demolished Orange Bowl in, in Miami, Florida. Like that's it, it, it seemed to be almost metaphorical for for what the team kind of did under Bobby Dodd. I know that's kinda of corny, but another reason why why I can write a lot of
1: narratives into nineteen sixty six, I believe. That's a dominant football season, even in modern era. You're gonna have one or two close games. And then to lose that tight one right there before the bowl season, when that's how everything that's where all the money was made, but you still played in the orange bowl, which I mean, at that time was a really big deal. Yeah. And, and, and you're
3: led by uh, a junior quarterback, uh, Kim King. Um, Bobby Dodd's last great quarterback uh, was uh, a radio personality for Georgia tech for a long time. Uh, they called him the young left-hander, but at some at some point no matter how much star power you have um there were other uh drafted and, and uh, hall of fame caliber types uh remembered types on this team but even then like so many great teams do do that stumble like you lose a game you lose two games i mean we've seen so many great teams or you can you can write in the pro sports of, of teams that should have won in playoff games or heck even, even college sports as well like you're gonna you're gonna run into sports uh misery or sadness or or whatever you want to say it's it's why they play the games like yes georgia tech in 1966 goes into sanford stadium for thanksgiving weekend i believe that game was actually on thanksgiving i i have that written down here somewhere um shame on me for not knowing but um thanksgiving rivalry game yeah you might be ranked better than them but they play better than you on a on a given day and it doesn't matter who your draft picks are or, like, you know, I mean, there's a reason I have Kim King's autobiography on my shelf here, you know, like he was, he was a notable guy um, and then an unranked Florida team in, in the bowl. But I think that one may, and this is me conjecturing just a little bit, uh, have been also a letting UGA beat you twice kind of situation, but that's just me.
1: It was still the same thing back then as it is now. That was over a month from the end of the season before you got to play your bowl game and so much can change. Yeah. Uh,
3: And I mean, I think a great example of that is, is looking at the life of Bill Curry, who was, you know, a a lineman on Georgia tech's team, 62 to 64. Like if you read his book too, like his, his experience in the NFL after he left tech is not a glamorous one. Like it's, Mm -hmm you you just go on to life, it's it's like a job, but everyone, not even everyone, but people come to watch you do your job. Um, and I think it's also worth time back. It's not like it was for sure that Bobby Dodd was leaving either. Maybe you think, hey, like this is Dodd's last game. He did not announce his retirement until late February, 1967. That would be unthinkable in our day and age. But at the same time, there's kind of the understanding that young, Bud Carson, um, and this is not to disparage Bud Carson, uh, he had a wonderful career as a defensive coordinator, Iron Curtain, Pittsburgh Steelers, defenses, and all that, but you hand over the reins from an experienced Bobby Dodd who's been around the block to his handpicked successor who, for for all the Frank is you can have, was not one of Bobby Dodd's long time, long time assistants and that's that. Like you, you look at nineteen sixty six and that is the end of the golden era of Georgia Tech before I think anyone knew it either. So you're you're looking at that in, in that orange bowl game going, not oh, this is Bobby Dodd's last last game. We have to win one for win one for the Gipper. I know new Rock Rockney didn't actually uh or sorry, it's probably made up story. Again, story for another podcast. But um yeah, there, there wasn't the got to get one last one for Dodd. For all everyone else knew, he was going to stick around. And heck, as athletic director, he did for another 10 years. But that's the reality of 66. We can we can dive into the more things change, the more things stay the same. If you're trying to be a Tech fan this season, the amount of games that are on ACC Network, which is a great network, and I know I get it because I have YouTube TV, but there are a very many people that cannot watch those games and that's you know the 14 football programs plus Notre Dame in in every other sport baseball volleyball soccer field hockey all all of the whole shebang um or you have the the Jefferson Pilot special um to to borrow a, a much older phrase or the Raycom special that's on <laughs> the local Bally affiliate and half half the people in Atlanta couldn't watch the Braves this entire season, or can't watch Atlanta United as they run up to the postseason, or watch Georgia Tech basketball, volleyball, baseball, football, or the Hawks, who are really good, too, because they're all on on Valley, and, and it's it's ironic how there's all this access, but even, you know, I guess, in 1966, it's just, you got to buy a ticket or tune in on the radio, and now it's kind of the same way for some people. Tying that back into Tech and in, 66 in, in particular, do you know what happened in 1967? do not. They had a new coach, Bud Carson, <laughs> also tacked 5,000 more seats onto the football stadium. Uh-huh. Like that's, that's how people consume the games. That's how you yep. get the attendance. That's how people only could. But at the same time, in 1966, you have this, this great team. You want to capitalize on it. You have new stands. Awesome. What else is new? The Atlanta Falcons and the Atlanta Braves. You're not the only game in town anymore. There's other sports dollars to go around. The access is different. Who's covering you is different. Um the you know the the Genesequa of UGA and Auburn being trying to capitalize on the Atlanta market is very real. And all of a sudden, Georgia Tech in 67, with a stadium that's grown by 14,000 seats since 1961, is now competing with 81 Braves baseball games at home every year, eight Falcons games. They're not, I mean, they're still playing a lot of the familiar faces and things like that, but you're you're staring down the barrel of Atlanta, a team that is, incre- or a city that is increasingly made up of transplants and suburbanizing with a giant stadium that, if you stumble at all, you're not going to be able to fill I look at those decisions. And, and I don't know if you guys are familiar, but Georgia tech, 1 to 0,3. Uh, so relatively recent history decided we're going to knock down our North bleachers. We're going to put up a new North stands. It'll be student sections, a bunch of suites, and then, you know, just regular bleachers seating on top and they still pay the financial decision for that today. Because the calculus was, oh, we'll fill more seats on top, we got way more boxes to sell, and then we'll just put the students there, and it'll be it'll be hunky dory, you know like that's at the end of the day that's that's what's driving the decisions and, and not to say that yes, let's talk about nineteen sixty six for only the money, but it it's very, very interesting to see how the parallels like we can say, oh, like coach X makes too much money today, but really it's it's always to some extent been about money. John Heisman came to Georgia tech because they promised him a large chunk of the gate receipts. And that was in 1903. Like it's, <laughs> it's always been there. Heisman was a Shakespearean actor on the side and a noted kind of uh flair for the dramatic. Yeah. Who isn't I- I- exactly. Exactly. I would not have pegged him as being a notable football player, but he, he had a genius mind and Georgia Tech got beat by Clemson so badly, I believe it was 73 to nothing, UGA gave Clemson a bushel of apples for every point more they scored against Georgia Tech than UGA had done a few weeks prior. So this is, you know, apples really just motivating Clemson to beat the brakes off of Georgia Tech. And Georgia Tech was so impressed, a team that had never had a coach, really a permanent coach since, and I guess you could count, this is me getting into the weeds here, um, uh, Leonard Wood, uh, was not really a student, but a student uh, who was also our coach in 1893. And then they didn't really have a real one after that. Um, you might know him as the governor general of the Philippines and of Cuba at one point, uh, because he was Absolutely. already, you know, 34 and in the army and playing college football for Georgia tech. But anyways, 10 years wilderness, terrible football. They go, all right, we're going to commit to this. Let's go hire Heisman. And they, he says, all right, give me the gate receipts. And Georgia Tech played, I believe it's 85% of its home games or games at home uh, for the next 15, 20 years. So he knew where his money was coming from. Um, A fantastic video. Uh, If you've never seen it, it's by John Boyce. Uh, It's called Pretty Good. It's a story of the Cumberland game. Fantastic video. Says it way better than I could in this half sentence. But the reason John Heisman was so obsessed, as Boyce notes, about his gate receipts and, and getting Cumberland in to play this game in which they were doomed because they no longer had a football team is because John Heisman got paid for them showing up. <laughs> he was going to cancel the game because that meant he wasn't going to get his contract. He wasn't going to get his money. So tech got its gate receipts and Cumberland lost 222 to nothing.
2: Like what is one or a couple things that, uh, that people should know about, um, the nineteen sixty-six Georgia Tech um football team. Well, I,
3: I think it kind of ties into the reason I picked this in the first place. And obviously there's the the big high-level things that we talked about, but but the reason like Georgia Tech fans I think are not fixated on the past because they're, you know, we hopefully have a, a brighter future in, in front of us. Everyone wants to believe that. And but in terms of 66, it represents the the end of what was, and for what was, and and is a, a significant chunk of, uh, you know, our, our fan base, or the fathers and mothers, or grandfathers and grandmothers of our fan base. Like this is this is the last uh, of the Georgia Tech of you know beating everyone who comes by them in the southeast for sixty years under under consistent coaching and 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 things like that. So I, I feel like the importance isn't necessarily. In the 11 games that they played you know that they had nine wins and two losses that's a great year they finished you know a a top 10 team Uh, they made it to the orange bowl like that is that is a season that many fan bases throughout history today past whenever would kill for like that that's a great year but independent of that it it really represents the the sunset in a sense of of the Georgia Tech of Dodd and Alexander and Heisman and into a a more inconsistent world after that. And and granted, there's 1990. Like, that shows the ceiling of of what the ACC, well, I mean, Clemson shows the ceiling of what the ACC can do. But um, what Georgia <laughs> Tech can do is represented in, in 1990 and in 2014 in, in the Joe Hamilton years of 98 to 2000. And all of those are remarkable seasons. We had a couple of great years under Bill Curry, who I mentioned earlier, like those, that doesn't take away any of the legacy of that, but it kind of crystallizes, and and especially because it is Bobby Dodds last year that they were able to, you know, have a nine win season after being, you know, just pretty okay. The previous eight or 10 years that it's like the, the last hurrah almost of what was for, for, you know, the, the coach of the year. It's the bobby dodd award the player of the year gets the john eisman like that is more than anything those two made their legacies yeah heisman coached at clemson and auburn and penn and yeah dodd played for tennessee but more than anything they made their legacies at georgia tech and and this is the swan song of of that georgia tech of their georgia tech
2: so yeah absolutely we will uh we'll get you out of here soon um but we do have one more question for you so georgia tech are the they're the yellow jackets yeah um, so we would like you um if you could to rank your top five jackets of all time
3: my top five jackets wow this is really putting me on the spot um <laughs> i will say i am i am partial to the Ramblin' wreck uh, i i was in the rec club in my time at tech which takes care of takes care of the car um Ooh, do they have to be jackets that I own or jacket? No, any jacket, any types of jackets. I'll give you my least favorite jacket first. And sure. that is whatever the heck that, uh, sport jacket, the bright orange that, uh, I'm with you. Radakovich wore right think I think that's like <laughs> at his opening press conference, when he got fired <laughs> away from tech, just looking like a, like a, Oh, my goodness. Who's the Illinois coach that used to wear the creamsicle sport jacket? Oh, that's going to kill me. Um, (laughs) Anyways, um, top five. Mm, I do love a good Columbia. Uh, That's – or no, a Polaris snowmobiling jacket. That's got to be fun. Um, Snowmobiling is fun. If you've never done it, go up to Wisconsin, go up to Michigan. The cold won't kill you. It's actually bundle up. That's probably a more important thing to say, um a lot of fun um like a good like a good winter jacket to wear um a denim jean jacket. I have a boathouse rec club actually gold and white Georgia Tech jacket that is fantastic for game days, especially now that it's getting you know fifties uh forties down here in the south um if you are that dedicated uh and you want to go back into the a p photo file for the Clemson Georgia Tech game in 2017. You can pick me out of the stands wearing that jacket. It was a hurricane of a game up in Death Valley. Horrible, but done many miles in that one. Um, Two more, two more, because that's three. I have a Cubs 1984, um, just like, it's not a fleece, but it's not a winter jacket, but it's also not like one of those starter, like like vinyl type jackets, but just real real vintage, like Chicago Cubs. I'm I'm grew up a Cubs fan. Like that is born and bred and that that is my love Georgia Tech. I hope that came through on this podcast, but they'll, they'll never talk the Cubs, I'm sorry. But um and then one more. Hmm. I don't know. There's something a little bit different about walking into work. We have a really nice Sport jacket on, maybe with some patches on it. You look kind of like a a nutty professor. I, I TA'd in college. I wore it in one day, and I was like, ah, I look smarter than I did last week. Um, <laughs> not necessarily in that order, honestly. The the Cubs one is probably probably first, but uh,
2: there's also the 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 green jacket from the Masters. True, um, right? So, that, so that's another problem. jacket. A duster jacket,
1: um, like that's a that's a cool thing in Texas. You know, wearing the duster. Yeah, that's
2: fair. Um, the gold jack, gold jacket from Happy Gilmore.
1: Yeah, gold um, jacket, green jacket. Who gives? Oh,
2: <laughs> uh, we, we um,
3: keep on one of my buddies on the course, Shooter McGavin, because he's he, he gets <laughs> very angry sometimes. But very apt movie in a lot of ways, really for for my golf experience.
2: Yeah, and then and then my favorite jacket um, is actually the Blink One Eighty Two album, "Take Off Your Pants and Jacket." That's my favorite okay. jacket.
1: Yep, I like that one. Yep. <laughs> what about a full? Like we can go into guns, and you could have a full metal jacket.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. Oh. All yep. sorts, all sorts of different jackets.
3: <laughs> you know, there's for being on the spot. I feel like that was a pretty good list. You're kind of all over the place, but hopefully you got Absolutely. what you want to
4: There you have it. That is the story. And these are the college football stories. Was it 100% accurate? Yeah, that sounds right. Follow us on Twitter at the CFB stories. Also see all of our inebriated storytelling podcasts as part of the stories podcast network at the stories pods on Twitter as our guests rewrite the past across various sports. Alcoholic drinks are consumed voluntarily by our guests at their own discretion. Please drink responsibly.